Good morning, everyone. This is uh, like the sheep and goat judgment. You showed up in the wind, and so you were here. I always wonder about that. I can't go out because it might mess up my hair, but I'm excited to look at Psalm 15 today. It's one of my favorites. I know I keep saying that, but as I get through them, uh, Psalm 15 is particularly interesting because it is actually a juxtaposition against Psalm 14, which we'll see um, right near the end of our time. But let's spend a little time in prayer and thank the Lord for yesterday and for the Lord's Day we have today. Our Father, we come to you now with a, a desire to quiet our hearts, and even outside as it's uh, blustery and uh, difficult weather, uh, we're reminded that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that even as we gather together, we, we find solace and we find hope. We find help and comfort by being with your people, by gathering together with our Bibles open and our hearts eager and our minds sharpened by the truth that you present to us. I pray that our time this morning would even be perhaps a, a warm-up for us to truly get our hearts and minds completely involved here with your people outside of the world and inside the body of Christ. Thank you for uh, the day we had yesterday and the evening that the men had Friday evening to hear the word of God and to be uh, exhorted and for us to just grow in you, to have uh, six messages, Lord, to uh, thrill our hearts and help us to remember that we are citizens of two kingdoms, as, uh, as Jesse pointed out yesterday, but that our first and final allegiance is to our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. So Psalm 15, and while you're finding that, I, I was thinking about this the other day, that depending on your generation, um, there are phrases you've either used or you've at least heard them used. But if somebody said, can you define that? I, we don't know how to define them. They're just phrases that are part of our, our culture. Things like um, a piece of cake, meaning that something's easy. Or it's raining cats and dogs, meaning it's a hard rain. Or giving a cold shoulder, meaning to ignore someone or, or shun them. Uh, I like barking up the wrong tree, uh, directing your efforts toward the wrong thing. Um, and one I just learned, apparently it's so old-fashioned, even I didn't know it, teaching your grandmother to suck eggs. I, what does that mean? It means not telling you something you already know how to do. Um, apparently that's a big thing in cooking with a, a, an earlier generation. But even the ones I just told you, they just revealed my generation. Today's generation, if the younger generation, and, and we'll label them whatever you want, they have saying things like a bad take, that this is when someone shares an opinion that kind of makes everyone wince. Or similarly, that something is cringeworthy. If someone says something that makes the whole room emotionally uncomfortable at that moment. I like this one, a situationship. Two people, not officially in a relationship, but everybody suspects that they could be. They're in a situationship. And my all-time favorite for this week, uh, the ick factor. A quality that's unsavory, and that person has this as an ick factor. Now, if you've been around for a while, for some reason... 
Whatever sayings were in your generation get stuck, and after age 30, you're not allowed to learn anymore. And I don't know why that is, and when you're um, 50 and 60 and 70, you keep saying the same ones, thinking that you're really with it, and everybody, see, with it is from the 70s. I've already given that. It, it happens to all of us, and for all the young people who say, oh, that'll never happen to me, just wait, and I hope I'm around to watch that. But in the realm of following Christ, there's a similar phrase that is so part of our vocabulary. It's so second nature to most of us. And yet, if somebody asks you to define it, I think it would take a little more thought than perhaps we've ever given it. And that phrase is the Christian life. What is the Christian life? Is it when a professional athlete points to heaven when he scores a touchdown or hits a home run? Is that the Christian life? Is it telling everyone you have a relationship with Jesus, that that's the Christian life? I I have a relationship. Is it now dedicating all of your selfish goals and dreams to Jesus while still doing what you want to do? Is that the Christian life? Is it, uh, as famous songs have said, making Jesus your co-pilot or similar concepts that Jesus comes alongside me to help me in all of my pursuits? Excuses. He said, well, it's just because I love the game so much. And it made headlines when the same professing Christian attempted to hype up his team using four-letter words in every sentence to, to create emotion. That's not walking blamelessly. That's when your life and your conduct don't, or your, your life and your profession don't match. Integrity says that what you believe is evidenced in how you live. There's not a massive disconnect between your professed faith and your lived faith. And that's not, to walk blamelessly isn't speaking of sinless perfection. It's simply that generally speaking, your, your life is reflective of what you say you believe. So second characteristic of the Christian life, honesty. Honesty. David continues in verse 2 describing the man who works righteousness. This is a phrase that means to do what is correct, to do what is true, particularly with an emphasis on doing what is honest. What is dishonesty? Dishonesty is a form of self-protection. It's trying to protect your image or protect others' view of you by having your words give a different version of reality. That's what dishonesty is. Uh, For example, making excuses. That's a form of lying. It's a form of dishonesty. I was late because I couldn't find my shoes. Uh, That might be true, But if it's not true, then it's just a lie designed to keep you from having to say, I was late and I wasted some of the time God gave you on earth and that's stealing and I want to ask for your forgiveness. Generally, a propensity for dishonesty goes hand in hand with a refusal to ever repent of anything. Those two go together. There's always a reason. There's always an excuse. There's always some mitigating circumstance and it becomes for some a terrible habit that when something uncomfortable is brought up, the immediate reaction is to mount a defense, to give a reason. Well, here's the actual situation, to point blame at others. But in a more general sense, the, the person who works righteousness simply has an innate, Holy Spirit-driven sense of doing what's right. Why? For the sake of the fact that it's right. And that's the only reason. There isn't a a reasoning that there might be a different alternative. I've said this before. I think it's important to point out, though, because I think it's a caution for all of us in the church, and and I I think it's also a caution, especially in parachurch organizations, 
historically, local churches and especially parachurch organizations have a tendency from honoring Christ to moving toward protecting the organization as being the top priority. And that I've studied this in history, and it is almost inevitable that the priority goes from we'll do whatever honors Christ up to and including closing the doors. Instead, it moves to we will protect the organization at all costs, and then we'll say we're honoring Christ, but we're really protecting the organization. And that becomes now a shift in honesty, and it's a form of idolatry. There's a third characteristic of the Christian life, humility. Humility. David continues in verse 2 that this man speaks truth in his heart. Now, right up front, that tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us that this may be someone who's outwardly honest. Yes, you are correct. I should not have done that. But inwardly, he's dishonest. That guy, who does he think he is? I had to grovel and apologize. How humiliating is that? That's inwardly dishonest. That what you said outwardly didn't match what was in your heart. So what does it mean to speak truth in your heart? Well, it's just what it sounds like. It's the idea of being honest with yourself. Now, that presents a problem. Because we're pretty biased when we're examining ourselves, aren't we? The Apostle Paul even said this. He mentioned the fact that the Corinthian church was judging and examining him. And so he responded in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3. He said, But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. And why does he say that? Why does he say it's not a big deal to me to be examined by you? Because he says, in fact, I don't even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. Here's the caveat. Yet I am not by this acquitted. The one who examines me is the Lord. So in other words, if you say, I've examined my own heart and I found no liability, no sin in this particular instance or situation, wisdom, prudence, and honesty would dictate to say to yourself, look again. And look again with the eyes of humility and with meekness. Now, this isn't a call to denigrate yourself. This isn't a call to be continually focused on your sins and that every day I'm just going to think about all my sins all the time. It is a call, though, to not default automatically to this problem must be someone else's fault, but to be more honest with yourself. Here's a fourth characteristic of the Christian life, trustworthiness. Trustworthiness. I told you these would be challenging, and this is David's fault, not mine. David continues now in verse 3, this man does not slander with his tongue. Slander is an interesting word. It means in the Old Testament to be a spy. It means to be a double agent. What does a double agent do? It means to be uh, pretending to be kind and loyal and loving to someone's face while doing anything possible to ruin that person's reputation when they're not there. And you might say, oh, this would never happen in the church. As a pastor, I would put this in the top three most frequent issues that elders have to deal with in the church is the idea of slander and being the person who is, is uh, not loving when someone's not there. In fact, on this topic, there is what you might call a hard check principle in Proverbs 17 on the subject, not just as the giver of slander, but the recipient of it. Here's the standard, Proverbs 17, 4, an evildoer gives heed 
to the lips of wickedness. A liar gives ear to a destructive tongue. That it's not just the person who's doing the speaking, it's the person who's doing the listening, and they're called an evildoer and a liar. Now, the opposite of this attitude is found in Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome or no corrupting talk uh, proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed, so that it will give grace to those who hear. You know, it's, uh, there's a, a, a wonderful Christian man in our church today, and I don't name his name simply because this is being recorded, um, who is in the hospital right now, and multiple of our members, myself included, have visited him. You know, we can't get him to say a negative thing about his situation. And he is, is in a horrible, dire situation. And he just keeps saying, the Lord's been so good, and I'm so thankful for this, and thankful for that. And he is living this at a high level. Here's a fifth characteristic of the Christian life. It's a long word, but it's the best one, I think. Tenderheartedness. Tenderheartedness. David continues in verse 3 that this is a man who does no evil to his neighbor. Now, you may recall, if I say the word neighbor, an interesting interaction that Jesus had with an expert in the law, in the law of Moses. And I'll read it to you from Luke 10. You don't have to turn there. A scholar of the law stood up and was putting him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself... He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, at this point, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. This was to point out that this man was justifying himself, but he was actually in the company of the unjustified. And Jesus never answered the question, who is my neighbor? Because this would have played right into the self-righteous man's hands of trying to justify himself. But scripture does answer the question, who is my neighbor? In the context of the Israelite covenant, the covenant that David was under, the context that David lived his life, your neighbor was anyone in your covenant community, anyone in the community of faith. Now, keep that definition in mind. Your neighbor is anyone in the community of faith. To do evil to your neighbor, evil means to cause injury, it means to cause distress, to cause affliction, particularly with the implication that this is without remorse, without care, without any repentance. It's sort of a too-bad-for-you attitude. And so to do evil to your neighbor is to unrepentantly cause distress without care or concern to a fellow member of your covenant community. And in our case, that is the church. He doesn't do evil to his neighbor. Instead, the true believer is tender and sensitive to fellow members of the covenant community of faith. And he is, as Peter commanded in 1 Peter 3.8, that all of you are to be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble in spirit. Tender-hearted, remember I gave you some of those expressions that, that we are hard-pressed to define, but we sort of know what they mean. Tender-hearted was one of those in Peter's day. It was a colloquialism. It was a popular expression, and, and it meant you're compassionate all the way to your guts. It's real. It's a compassion that comes from the inside, that this is the real you, that you are actually tender-hearted. 
There's a sixth characteristic of the Christian life, gentleness. Gentleness. The godly man or woman in verse 3 does not take up a reproach against his friend. Now, while neighbor may include anyone in the community of faith, your friend speaks of your, your closer relations, your closer neighbors, the ones with whom you're most emotionally bonded to by family or by long friendship, by unique camaraderie. And we all have those. You, you, could, you could picture a, a target with a, with a uh, bullseye and then concentric circles going out. And you could write the people who are in the middle in your life, those who are in the next circle and those and so forth. Even Jesus had that with the three, Peter, James, and John, and then others outside that. And so your friend is the neighbor that you're closest to. To reproach someone speaks of reviling them, of taunting, intimidating, uh, verbal abuse, uh, particularly with a flavor of controlling. It's the idea of turning on someone with whom you used to be close and, and, and turning against them. And I think some of you have probably experienced that. I've experienced it. It's an emotional punch in the stomach that in some cases you'll carry with you for the rest of your life until Christ restores all things. Now, you, you can forgive, and you might not have the emotion of bitterness, but any protracted and long thinking about it brings the pain back, and it just kind of becomes a part of you. But that's not something that genuine Christians ought to engage in, to revile someone, to slander them, to purposefully denigrate them, usually at the same time elevating yourself, and to do so with no remorse, no repentance about this, that's a major spiritual danger sign. It's, it's huge. But the genuine believer in Christ, he yearns to love, he yearns to cherish, he yearns to be helpful, he yearns to show grace. In other words, there's a gentleness that pervades relationships. There's a softness that characterizes a Christian's interactions with and about those who are closest to him. The seventh characteristic of the Christian life, loyalty. Loyalty. David continues now with a slightly longer description of this character trait. In verse 4, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. Now let me unravel that a little bit because it's a, it's a lengthy description. The reprobate is a rejected person. This is someone who has pretended to be in the true faith, but he's exposed as a fraud. He's a fake member of the household of faith. To despise the retrobate, re- reprobate, rather, the vile person in, in some translations, I think the best description I saw, the best uh, lexical definition to despise him is to disesteem him. Disesteem him. It's not meaning to have an emotion of seething hatred. It is to give him the proper estimation, to not render to that person the respect and the weightiness that you give to a believer, a genuine believer in Christ. It it can even mean to think lightly of someone. In other words, this is someone who's presented himself as someone who fears God, but he doesn't actually fear God. On the other hand, but he who honors, he's the one who honors those who fear Yahweh, that he honors the believer. Now, you might say, this sounds really harsh. This sounds difficult. Actually, this is precisely in line with both Old Covenant law and New Covenant law. In the Old Covenant, the one who continues to reject the ways of the Lord ultimately was to be put out of the nation and in 19 different cases, executed. 
that, that you didn't esteem him heavily. You didn't say, oh, the poor guy. There were circumstances involved with his continued sin. And it is in line with new covenant teaching, new covenant law, that the one who presents himself as a believer in Christ and yet continues in prideful, unrepentant, harmful sin is judged as an unbeliever and put out of the church. Oh, that's so harsh. I'm just quoting Paul. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The implication is, is that the church is judged that he is an unbeliever. In our circles, we, we go as far as saying that the church has judged that he is acting as an unbeliever and probably isn't. In uh, more traditional Reformed and Presbyterian circles, they say that that judgment carries weight in heaven, that that is not a believer. Um, and they take it even to a, a further level. 1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul says, Now I'm writing you to not associate with any so-called brother if he's sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. And again, this isn't someone who has fallen into those sins as a matter of the course of their walk with the Lord. This is someone who is in those sins, unrepentant, not sorrowful, and in fact, likes it. And Paul goes on to say, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Are you not to judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God will judge. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So here's an interesting self-cross-examination. The righteous man is the one who obeys these admonitions. It is not a righteous man who gives care and comfort and sympathy to the fraud. That is not a sign of righteousness. That's a sign of unrighteousness. The genuine believer is loyal to other genuine believers, not to the reprobate who's rejected the faith by his actions or by church discipline. Loyalty to those who are disciplined out of the church is an indication of a problem with your own faith. It doesn't mean you can't be kind. It doesn't mean you don't call them to repentance, but you're not loyal to them and you don't esteem them highly. You esteem them with the same esteem you would would give someone who has rejected God. Here's an eighth characteristic of the Christian life, honor. I told you these were challenging. You put them all together and they they form a a lofty picture, honor. Verse four, David continues, he describes a godly man as one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, I don't think you can go so far as to say that every time you say yes to something, you're swearing on everything that's holy that you will fulfill that. That's, that's a little bit extreme. But it means to be someone who keeps his commitments as a reflection of your godliness. And it may be a reflective of the state of your soul. I did a whole message on this passage a few months ago, but it's worth revisiting just for a moment. Matthew five thirty three. Jesus said, again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of the evil one. I just want to draw your attention to the last part here. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. An oath or a vow in the Old Covenant, it held external threats. 
An oath was, may, may all of my property burn to the ground if I don't do X, Y, and Z. May the Lord strike my sheep dead and my children dead. They're, they're huge external threats that hold you to your oath. But Jesus is demonstrating that in the new covenant, these oaths and vows aren't necessary. They're, they're not needful. And the part I wanted to point out about, you can't even control the color of your hair, and all hair products aside, but in, you can't control the day a hair turns gray. You have no control over that. Jesus is demonstrating that you're not sovereign like God. That you can't control anything. And so, in other words, if you say, I will do as I have said because I am a man of my word, that's actually less accurate, that's less spiritual, less covenant-oriented than to say, I will do as I said because I serve a God who is a God of his word. That's loftier, that's higher. We don't need external threats and curses. Just let your statement be yes, yes, and no, no. I, I find it interesting here that David actually gives us a new covenant preview that he is showing us that the one who loves God swears to his own hurt and does not change, meaning he's a man of his word because God is a God of his word. A little preview of the new covenant there. It's the ninth characteristic of the Christian life, generosity. Generosity. Verse 5, he does not put out his money at interest. Now, this isn't saying that you're in sin if you're a banker. This is not saying you're in sin if you ever loan somebody money as part of a business transaction or an investment. David, remember, he's writing in the context of the community of the faith. He's writing in the context of your neighbors, all who worship Yahweh, and your friends, those who are closest to you who are worshipers. That when your neighbor or your friend is in some sort of difficulty, you don't say, I'll help you, I'll give you money. 10% interest compounded hourly and we're good. He doesn't do that. Instead, you have a heart of generosity. And the heart of generosity shows itself in how you treat your neighbors, how you treat your church members, how you treat the gospel ministry. The heart of generosity views your stuff as God's stuff. It views you as a funnel of God's stuff, not the destination of God's stuff. In fact, that's such an important characteristic that Paul actually lists generosity as a spiritual gift. Romans 12, 8, that he who gives, how? With generosity. And then this generous spirit, it ties us right into the life of a regenerate man or woman, and it directly relates to the 10th characteristic of the Christian life, and that is contentment. Contentment. You can't be generous if you're not content. And so David continues his description of the righteous man, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. The one who takes payment or remuneration of any kind from one party against another, this is corruption. This is spiritual infection. Now, what's the context here? Is this just one person paying someone else to do something for him? No, it's way bigger than that. More often than not, a bribe speaks of giving payment to someone in power to harm someone else's life with their power a judge or an official of some kind. And in fact, it may be that the bribe is actually something like this. Judge, if you will help me in my lawsuit against this person uh, to take away his property because of this or that, I'll give you his property that I'm taking away. So it's actually the taking away of property 
of someone who is lesser than you and, and more vulnerable. There are multiple levels of wickedness with that. But the opposite of that is the genuine believer who's content, who's, who's not tempted by that at all. And the thought of having more at the expense of taking from someone else is abhorrent to him. That, that he couldn't possibly do that. Just a little side note here. That there isn't a direct correlation, but there is a loose relationship between these 10 character qualities and many of the Ten Commandments. And, and I don't have time to go into that, but you could just look at Psalm 15 and Exodus 20 and, and really make a chart and show that David is giving the outworking of many of the Ten Commandments. But what I really want to draw your attention to is only accomplished now by reading the whole psalm, which we have not done yet. So let's start at the beginning of Psalm 15. A psalm of David. O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. We've accurately described the character qualities of someone who is living the Christian life, to use New Covenant terminology. But Psalm 15 does not say that these are merely qualities of the true believer. That's not what it says. It does give us those qualities, but that's not the main point. And so there's two lessons that are vital to take away from this, that that are bigger, they're more grand, they're more important. One is in the area of holiness, and the other is in the area of the gospel. Let me talk about holiness first. In the area of holiness, David asks this double question in verse 1. Oh, Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? In other words, who is worthy to approach God? Who's worthy to live with God? The answer, only the one who has these qualities we went through. Now, there's reasonable evidence that David wrote this psalm in connection to and concerning the occasion when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6 uh, describes this. It was a holy day. It was an important day. It was a consecrated day. It was a, it was a dangerous day. What do I mean by that? This was the instance in which Uzzah reached out to the Ark to steady it, and God killed him. In fact, it says that the anger of God burned against Uzzah and God struck him down. And 2 Samuel 6, 9 says that David was afraid of Yahweh that day. R.C. Sproul has pointed out some helpful observations about Uzzah. Because it's, it's kind of hard for us to read this and wonder why God would strike someone dead just for trying to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling to the ground. Well, here are the actual facts. And we did this a a few months ago in Matthew, but I think it's worthy of repeating. Here are the facts. God prohibited touching the holy things of the tabernacle. You weren't allowed to do that. The ark was constructed with rings in it so it could be carried by poles, not be touched by sinful men. Exodus 25 gives those stipulations. Numbers 7 verse 9 says that a very specific family, the sons of Kohath, they were the ones given the task of carrying the holy things with poles on the shoulder, never touching them. 
Numbers 4, verse 15 says, when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. So God prohibited touching the holy things. Here's another fact. Uzzah did not die on a technicality. It wasn't just God being overly technical. This is not characterized in 2 Samuel 6 as an innocent mistake. 2 Samuel 6 says that God struck him because of his error, not because it was an accident. Error is a word that means hastiness, impudence. It can even be translated blasphemy. And if God is always just, and God is always just, then Uzzah deserved to die. There's a third fact. The ark wasn't being carried according to the law. You may recall they put the ark of the holy creator God on a cart pulled by cows. Instead of being carried by the poles on the shoulders of men consecrated and set apart for the task. And there's one more fact Uzzah had pride in his heart concerning himself. And you might say, where where do you see that? Well, we see it by the implication that Uzzah instinctively believed something about himself, and therefore he acted on that belief. Uzzah believed he was cleaner before God than the ground was, the ground that would have taken the fall of the ark, that it was better for the ark to touch his hand than it was to touch the dirt. Here's the spiritual reality. The creation, the dirt, is actually the spiritual victim of the sin of mankind. The dirt is innocent. It's the victim of sin. Romans 8.20 says that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The fall of mankind and the sin brought the curse on the dirt, so to speak. The dirt didn't sin. Mankind did. And so in reality, in many ways, dirt is spiritually cleaner than humanity. But Uzzah believed he was cleaner. So Uzzah did not die because he was innocently trying to help. He died because his heart was utterly filled with pride. And when the opportunity to show his humility came, he didn't do it because he instinctively thought himself clean before God. And he wasn't. Now, what's the holiness lesson in this from Psalm 15? It's not possible to approach the Lord in worship in sinless perfection But it is possible to approach the Lord in humility and with confessed sin. Take a little side note here, just for fun. This is a a debate that continues to rage in modern evangelicalism, and that is, what is the purpose of worship? Generally speaking, two big mistakes are made. First of all, worship is associated with music. That's not the case. Music is a form of worship, But the second uh, mistake that's made is that the assumption that our culture has drilled into us for five decades now is that worship is for me. And so now you have all of these preference issues. Well, I prefer songs that were written during this period. I prefer this. I prefer that. I need to feel something. Worship is to make me feel something. All of that is Uzzah. It is the assumption that I'm literally walking into a gathering of God's people so that I can get something from me. What is that? That is not a heart of humility. That's that's not a heart of worship. What does Psalm 15 do? 
This is David's check on his own heart that he dare not approach God with worship with anything other than total humility, total confession of sin, that he is asking himself, am I walking blamelessly? Am I working righteousness? Am I speaking truth in my heart? Have I slandered anyone? It is that you approach worship with a focus on my own confession, not what I'm going to go get. Now, the beauty of worshiping the Lord is we do get much, but that can't be our first focus. So the lesson in holiness is that Psalm 15 is a check on the heart before you approach the holy mountain of God. The second lesson is in the area of the gospel. From a gospel standpoint, consider the inspired order of the Psalms. What did David just give us in Psalm 14? Psalm 14, verse 2. Yahweh looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who has insight, anyone who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Altogether, they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one, meaning that the answer to the question, oh, Yahweh, who may sojourn in your holy tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? The answer to that is no one. No one can. Except one. Hebrews 9, beginning of verse 11, says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption." So the ultimate answer to the question of verse 1, O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent, who may dwell in your holy mountain? The ultimate answer is only Christ. Only he may do that. But in Christ, we as well may dwell in the holy mountain with God. And so we need Christ. We need the familiar comforting text of 2 Corinthians 5, 21 that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what does it mean to become the righteousness of God? What does that mean? It means that in God's eyes, in God's estimation, you have integrity, honesty, humility, trustworthiness, tenderness, gentleness, loyalty, honor, generosity, contentment, 100% of the time. That's what theologians call substitutionary atonement that God sees you as one. Yes, you may sojourn in the tent of God. Yes, you may dwell with him on his holy mountain. And so Psalm 15 checks our hearts before we worship and it reminds us of the gospel that it is only through Christ that we're allowed into the presence of God. I hope that's as encouraging to you as it has been to me. Let's go to the Lord together. Our Father, thank you for this psalm. So very challenging. It teaches us how to live the Christian life. It also reminds us that we dare not come before you with anything less than humility, trembling, and and anxious for your grace to relieve us of the sins we've committed, the ways we've dirtied our feet before you, that we dare not come with pride. We dare not come with personal preference issues as the driving force, but we come to hear the word of God spoken to our hearts, to sing truth Uh, that those truths may embed themselves deeply in our hearts to fellowship with your people in humility, as Philippians 2 says, considering one another is more important than ourselves. And we're reminded of the glorious gospel 
that because of Christ, we are seen as those who may dwell on your holy mountain. And someday, Lord, that will come true in literal reality when we may sojourn and travel to Jerusalem anytime we want to see our Savior face to face. We look forward to that day. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the reminder of holiness. And we thank you for the teaching through this psalm on how to live the Christian life. We ask you to help us to be faithful to these things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.